Benjamin Teitelbaum is a professor of international affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder and the author of War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. This is Benjamin Teitelbaum. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with Benjamin Teitelbaum. Uh, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Duncan. Uh, so you wrote a book recently, uh, War for Eternity, which is a very epic title and uh, largely deals with Steve Bannon and uh, these far right global power brokers. And you did you met with something like 20 hours of interviews with the guy. Uh, first off, did you did you have to delouse after talking to him? What physically, what was that like? <laughs> you know, at, at this point, I've been studying the far right for almost a decade, right? At the time that I'm writing this book and virtually all of that research is face-to-face interviews. So I kind of crossed that bridge a long, a long time ago. And it wasn't, it's, it's not the sort of thing that, that affects me viscerally in the way that it once did. The, the thing that was new with Steve Bannon for me, was that it was, was that, it was not just someone kind of on the ideological fringes, but also someone who in some way, shape or form currently or in the past has had influence and, you know, formal political power and influence. That was the strange part of it. That's, that's what, what uh, caught my attention more. But not so much influence, or at least doesn't seem as he, he's past the peak of his influence. He's no longer in the white house, obviously. And over the past few years, he's been trying to sort of, cobbled together this sort of coalition of the right. Uh, how's that going? What is he up to these days? The, you'd have to look at his projects, which number in the dozens. And I, you know, I've, I have access to a small number of them. And you'd have to conclude that virtually all of them have failed. Right. The reason I'm not as excited about that as some commentators is that that has been his past always. Uh, if, if you look at his biography from the 90s, it has been one initiative after another, scores of projects, most of which fail, one or two of which succeed and then become transformative for him personally and, and often for the causes that he's pursuing. So. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't want to want to myself relativize the importance of sitting on the National Security Council. Steve Bannon does not sit on the National Security Council anymore. Right. That mattered at the time. The fact that he's not there now matters, means that he has uh, influence that's been lost. But again, I'm still not on board with the consensus and a lot of commentary that, okay, he's a failure. That's not why I wrote the book. I don't really care if he's, if he's a failure or not. But um, okay, he's a you know he's a failure, and look at how pathetic he is now. The fight for control of the Republican uh, Party in Congress, for example, um, that is playing out right now, where Liz Cheney, this anti-Trump um, congresswoman from from Wyoming, daughter of of Dick Cheney, has just been removed from her post. That fight that is taking place, um, and the and the likely successor, a congresswoman from from New York State, who's coming uh, to potentially replace Cheney, that has played out in Steve Bannon's channels, all right? When she was announcing her candidacy and and her vision for the Republican Party, the channel that she chose to speak out through was Steve Bannon's podcast, War Room Pandemic. Yeah. Or 
calling it war room now. Um, so all of a sudden, after all of this catastrophic failure on his part with him being, you know, indicted and then and then pardoned by Trump in a very humbling manner in the wee hours of the Trump presidency, and you know how how pathetic he looked. All of a sudden, these past couple of weeks, it seems that his media channels are are newly relevant to at least internal Republican Party politics. I, I mention all that. I go off on that tangent to say. I am absolutely not convinced that he is is out of the picture for the future of the Republican Party or the conservative or right wing movements in the United States. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading that book, Black Swan, recently, where one of the things he talks about is, you know, if you're trying to bet on a black swan, bet on like a bunch of them that probably aren't going to work out. (laughs) And you you can look back like Sarah Palin was someone who he wanted to use as a vehicle to run for president at one point. And then Donald Trump wound up being the lucky horse, I suppose. Um, why th- this is kind of an off the wall question? Why isn't he running as a candidate? He's reportedly thought about it himself. Josh Green says has reported that he's had a conversation with him about that. I I never have myself. He he's charismatic. Let's admit. Yes. Um, he can be a, a terrible speaker. There are times when he, I've heard him be kind of quick on his feet, but thinking about him in a debate, I'm not sure that he would, he would work very well. It, and also he has benefited. Part of his longevity has been due to the fact that he has not been the front person, right? It's been Palin, it's been Trump. And, you know, as his personal politics, as his, you know, social scandals you know churn and move forward and it, none of it has ever really harmed him professionally because he's not he's not been in a position where scandal matter scandal matters so so whether or not he he aspires to be more than that he hasn't said much about it he's at the very least got a, a lot of reasons to thank not being a front a front a front figure a public figure in the same way that a, a politician would be um, he's, he's got a lot of reasons to thank that for his professional success, I think. Okay. And, and one of the things that you go into in the book that I didn't realize um, really motivated this guy and other far right figures is this philosophy called traditionalism with, with a capital T. Um, and you, you say at one point in the book, like you talk about these sort of like, uh, like pagan esque, like, you know, elements of the far right to, to your students to show that you know, these people aren't just like scary, but also profoundly weird. And the, the, can you describe what traditionalism is? Yeah. So traditionalism is first and foremost, a spiritual and religious teaching or practice or school. Um, initially, it did not have anything to do with politics. And it believes, it posits that that millennia in the past, ages and ages ago, there was one true religion, the religion that got it all right. I don't know if you've seen the South Park where they die and they go to, oh yeah, know, they, yeah, yeah. and they find out it's Mormonism. Oh no, Mormonism had it all right. The others were just, were, were bastardizations. Well, traditionalism believed that in the past there was a, a true, authentic, uh, enlightened religion. That's what the tradition is, capital T. But as, as ages uh, past as time moved forward, it was gradually uh, fractured, forgotten, misunderstood, 
and its teachings were scattered uh, in imperfect form to a lot of different religious practices throughout the world. And where you find them today are, are principally in the mystical, let's say esoteric branches of, of major world religions. So esoteric Islam, for example, uh, Sufism, sometimes esoteric Christianity, sometimes esoteric Judaism, like the uh, Kabbalah and things like that. Um, but first and foremost, you, you Hinduism. Um, and the motivation, the justification for that is, is that Hinduism is so much older and it's existed in unbroken practice much longer than other religions that are all kind of splinters from it. So traditionalists will look to all of those religions I just mentioned, often to Hinduism more, slightly more than the others, and try and piece together what this eternal, old, primordial truth was, this primordial tradition. And so that's the, that's kind of the big map of what it is. We actually, you haven't asked me, Duncan, I mean, like what the content of it is. And that's where politics matter is when they start talking about, okay, what was that tradition? What were the truths of the universe that were gradually forgotten and why were they forgotten? Okay. Well then take that question and run with it. <laughs> okay. So, um, the, the teachings of it that mattered, ended up mattering most for politics are these. Uh, one of them has to do with time. The reason that the tradition was forgotten is because they believe that um, for, for essentially all of our existence, things are going to be getting worse. Time is equal to decline. Time is equal to destruction um, and perversion and and. Uh, and forgetting and, um, and things like that. They believe in cyclic rather than time. They reject the notion of progress outright. They think that this teaching was known to, to ancient mystics as well. This is part of, part of um, what that old tradition was and it also foretold its own demise. So they think that, that human society passes through a cycle of from a golden age to a silver age, to a bronze age, to a dark age, and then following a, a short cataclysmic event resets itself to a golden age where, where after things continue to cycle on and on and on. Compare that to a notion of, of progress or linear time, which is what we're most accustomed to thinking about in the, in the, in the West, in, in modernized society. And, and, and also if we're, um, if we're thinking through a Christian or Judeo-Christian mindset. That way of thinking suggests that as time goes forward, things improve. Um, that we build upon uh, build upon our knowledge. That we are gradually escaping a past of ignorance and oppression, and slowly working towards a better society. This is sort of the informal civic religion of of America, for example. Right. Um, so that that's one thing is with is they reject time, the uh, time and progress really as being meaningful and they're inherently conservative in that respect that they think what is good is always is what has already been in the past, right? And what we can only hope to return to if we're lucky. So there's the time aspect. There's also a belief that um, what, what we might hope to return to features among other things, rigid social boundaries. Um, through Hinduism, they, they'll often speak about caste hierarchy. Um, and and the, the sheer existence of separate castes in society that recognize each other as being fundamentally different and having different 
um, characteristics, qualities, and destinies. And that as time goes on, those borders break apart and we see this ideal of egalitarianism and homogenization uh, starting to come with this idea of progress and we see boundaries breaking apart. Now, very, various traditionalists, especially as it starts to become more incorporated in the 1930s into politics, 1920s and 1930s and forward, um, they animate those basic ideas a little more than what I just was, was doing for you now. They say, yeah, it's not just caste hierarchies, not just an opposition between, let's say, spirituality and materialism, which is the way the Hindu caste system works, but they'll say, well, also boundaries between sexes. Um, you know, ideally men and women are, are purely distinct and we recognize them as having not just different bodies, but different spirits and destinies and yearnings and visions and society should recognize that. Um, and that sets them up to, to really strike a, a contrast with feminism, which they see as not only trying to, to equalize opportunities, but also blend identities and destinies together. Separately, they can also see boundaries uh, needing to exist in terms of ethnic or racial groups. And that it is a modernist perversion, a progressivist lie to think that all people should be mixed together and that we are essentially the same. Um, you know, something that under, underpins the, uh, a multi-ethnic democracy, um, you know, that, that concept. So we see those ideas. If, if I were to, to pause, you know, or, or rather try and summarize all this, what traditionalists often on, on the right, political traditionalists today, they'll look at the world and they see a world where there is um, increasing globalization, um, an increasing irrelevance of national borders, um, social causes that are bringing, bringing together and equalizing men and women, um, and, and also racial integration. They see that uh, coinciding with liberalism and secularism and think that all of these things are part of the same process. They're all foretold um, in the teachings of this school and, and they need to be opposed in some way. Okay, there's a lot to go through there. Um, one thing that just popped into mind is if they're talking about um, the the loss of national borders uh, or, or them becoming more porous, uh, why would a traditionalist who's hearkening back even thousands of years before the modern nation state was invented, why would they care about that? Great question. And it's for some traditionalists, nationalism itself is was is nothing to get excited about. Steve Banks from that mold, but but some of the earlier political traditionalists opposed nationalism for the reason you just mentioned. They correctly saw nation states as modern phenomenon. Some some further allege that yeah, there are borders around nation states, but the prevailing ideology in most nationalisms is that, well, within the nation, we are all going to be equalized, all right? There are no more, you know, no aristocracy, no, not a class system, um, but instead we are all going to be leveled as equal nationals. And there may be some domestic non-nationals, and that's a, that's a problem, but um, the, the ideology of, of nationalism really is to get rid of them, of course, and make sure that everybody is homogenized within the border. So um, as, as, as one pseudo-sympathetic commentator on this, Elaine de Benoit wrote, that 
really is just a sort of intermediary stage between, let's say, an older caste-based feudal system and global communism, let's say, mm. in his mind, uh, derisively speaking those terms. Um, you know, the nations were just kind of preparing the way for a global leveling and that they shouldn't be celebrated. So um, there's, there's a traditionalist ideologue who was once involved with Jobbik in, in Hungary, um, Tibor Baranyi, who in some way, shape or form was rather a royalist than a nationalist. And that was just too out there and weird, even for his his marginal party. So that that was one one problem he had. But that does let you know that for traditionalists, there this is not a natural fit with um, with nationalism. Hmm. It it is kind of uh, I can see the the opposition to the line of progress, where it seems like at least uh, among the liberal set that the idea is a nation should become a multi-ethnic, uh, you know, multicultural, uh, multilingual, uh, and secular and democratic. And then at a certain point, you can reasonably ask, okay, well, if that's the goal of every nation, at a certain point, why do we even have nations? And so then one could mourn the loss of this nation. Is that kind of where maybe like the appeal to nationalism comes from? I'm just trying to understand it. Oh, sure, sure. You could... I mean, so, so forget about the critique I just said. One could also see nationalism as just, you know, the, the first step in unraveling this broader process. I mean, someone could say that, well, we're already at a place right now where nation states even once were engines of homogenization now, now can function as, as tools to push back against a global equalizing. So yeah, it's um, it, it can certainly do that. And the idea that nations have borders, um, nations have histories that, that might be distinct from other nations in some way, um, all of that can appeal. It's, it's just, we really would see the signature of a devout traditionalist if they started to go beyond that, if they started to really say, okay, well, nations are great, but we really want even deeper within the borders of a nation to start to see stratification and spirituality prioritized and things like that. And, and I, we, I guess we should say, this is still like a pretty obscure, I mean, influential, but relatively obscure philosophy, right? I mean, you, you go into the book, how Steve Bannon like encountered this and he was in like the ports of Hong Kong going to mystic bookshops on the edge of town. Like it, it's a, tough to get your hands on, right? Especially in the realm of politics. You know, if, if you have spent your life studying comparative religion and alternative spirituality, and you're in that world, you probably have encountered some traditionalist thinker, or if not that, a traditionalist idea, let's say. But you go into, Duncan, you just graduated from USC, right? You're, right. You're, you're, you know, if you go to a political science department at a school like that, or where I teach at the University of Colorado, and start talking to them about traditionalism or its foremost thinkers, no one will have a clue. Yeah. If someone has a, if someone does know in one of those, one of those settings, it has nothing to do with their status as political scientists or anything like that. And if you're wandering around Washington, if you're in the offices of Congress, you know, congressional leaders and representatives, I doubt any of them or anyone on their staffs have ever heard about this either. You know, if they have, again, it has to do with some exterior eccentric interests of theirs. This has had 
had so little to do with politics. Really, that, you know, my book was kind of marketed as, as a Bannon book, but it's really about it's this, these set, this set of, of ideas that has not been in any position of power in politics suddenly gets there with some very volatile actors, right? But nonetheless, for being a set of ideas that never had any representation, it's fairly, that's what's more striking to me. Yeah, and there are other, like the, the characters in this book are, some of them are just wacky. Like Alexander uh, Dugan, Dugan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh-huh. Um, okay, I had, I had heard of him because he wrote some book called uh, The Foundations of Geopolitics, which I yeah. haven't read it, but I've read like a summary of it. And it seems to be like a blueprint of Russian foreign policy under Putin. Um, yes. First off, is that is that an accurate uh, statement? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, it was, you know, prior to Putin arriving, the whole, the whole idea was how, you know, forget about communism, but how as a state, a state actor, how can Russia regain the influence that it had in the Soviet Union? How should it do it? How should it subvert its foes internally and, and globally on the, on, on the global stage? Oh, okay. And who is this guy, Alexander? How did he come into a position of influence? I understand that that book is like being taught in certain like naval schools and stuff like that in Russia. And I mean, how did this guy no, spring out of nowhere? It's, it's hard. It, it was, I'm not sure that his, his, that particular book is being taught as much today, but it was definitely being taught at a critical period. I mean, the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, you know, that crucial period in, in, in Russian Russian political history. Who is Alexander Dugan? Um, I get this question in interviews and you'd think I'd be better at answering it, but it's, it's very hard to respond. You could call him a philosopher. That might be aggrandizing in some ways. Some people would want to just call him a crazy person. Um, he is used to be a musician. He's very interested in theater. He's a publisher. Um, he is a party leader at certain times. But you could also in the same breath call him a political operative. Um, Some would want to even call him a diplomat, though if we call him a diplomat, he's of a very informal back channel kind of diplomat. He writes books, um, he gives speeches, he publishes, he forms organizations and parties, he protests, he shows up in in areas of major military conflict and war zones in some cases and agitates for Russia uh, to push and be more aggressive than it might otherwise want to be. Um, and, and then when we see him, you know, one moment you see him doing something very goofy and silly, you know, he appears in some, uh, some, uh, you know, unnoteworthy setting on, on television. The next moment, it turns out that he is a lead mediator in some, some multilateral set of negotiations between powerful um, state actors. That, that an example of the latter is after the shooting down of a Russian plane in Syria by Turkey, by Turkey's military in 2015. Um, no one really quite knew the process by which all the, those three countries came to an agreement and and were able to um, temper their uh, their aggression toward each other. And it turns out that Alexander Dugan, this this kooky philosopher was the one who was serving as a mediator between between those countries. 
So he he's very difficult to characterize, um, uh, but he's all of those things. I suppose I could keep rambling and give you examples, sure. but it's, as you start to try and account for who he is, you have to deal with contrasts of him him doing some things that that are, seem very unserious and other things that seem very serious. And the strange thing is that him and Bannon have met and and sort of kind of, but not really are like comrades in arms where you, you go into what the meeting between them um, was like. Why did these two figures reach out to each other? Well, can I back up a moment, Duncan, and just talk about why, why that's surprising to us? Please, yes. So when I say that Dugan agitates for Russian military intervention and writes philosophy and things like that, what he is doing in many cases is bringing together traditionalism, what we were just talking about, something that he identifies with, um, and, and a geopolitical and military geopolitical campaign for Russia. Um, he believes that Russia and Eurasia are in of tradition and traditional values with a the way we would casually speak of that in the United States and also in this more eccentric way I've been talking about in this interview, that Russia could stand for an opposition to progress, for stasis, for localism, for difference, for segmentation, opposite globalism. That's what he thinks Russia, Russia could do. Um, and for religion, opposite secularism. Um, the opposite of all that is, is, is made incarnate in the United States in his mind. Um, he sees that the United States in particular, but also Western Europe uh, are the avatars of modernity and, and the lie of progress and globalization. And so for virtually all of his campaign, he, all, of, all of his career, let's say, he has been trying to come up with ways for Russia to stop Western expansion in his mind, push back against modernization, push back against liberalism in all of its guises, the free market, left-wing identity politics, all the things that, that the United States, Europe, Latin America put under the heading of liberalism. Alexander Dugan puts them all together and hates them all. Um, and so this is a guy who is deeply anti-American. Yeah. And yet, yes, 2018, um, he meets with Bannon. The two of them have been trying to meet for a while and they get together because they, Bannon, well, they both know that they, they share an affiliation with and an interest in traditionalism. That's what unites them. Um, but also Bannon wants to influence Dugan. Um, so they so they get together in, in Rome and Bannon makes a case to Dugan that his traditionalist inspired geopolitics is wrong backwards. And that really, if you wanted to prioritize roots, if you wanted to prioritize spirituality over materialism, secularism and progress, what needed to happen was that Russia and the United States should form an alliance. They shouldn't form an alliance based on capitalism and the Declaration of Independence and universal human rights and all those, all those things that we might think of as definitive of American identity. Instead, they should, they should unite around their common Christianity, common roots in, Judeo, in, in the Judeo-Christian world and forget about democracy, capitalism, um, you know, freedom of speech and all of those secular enlightenment values. Um, that's the case that Bannon made, hoping also to see Dugan start uh, agitating within Russia 
for a more pro-U.S. Uh, approach to a to a, a newly reconceived United States in many in many ways, um, and and to push back against China to try and break the link between Russia and China, which Bannon thinks is is you know wrong-headed and and also dangerous in the United States. And how do we know if he was successful at all in, in making that case? He was not. Um, <laughs> Dugan, Dugan was very, I mean, and Dugan has spoken differently about the United States since that meeting. Mm. Um, you know, Dugan is more open to thinking of the United States as being something other than a sheerly modern liberal construction. You know, and saying that, well, you know, the United States might actually have something like an ethnic identity to it in the way that European nation states are, are thought to, in which he kind of, you know, sees as being more, more authentic and traditional. Um, but he, he doesn't share, even as a traditionalist, forget about if, if we just kind of view things from their perspective, as a traditionalist, he didn't share Bannon's belief that, that, um, you know, people of, of a, the same religion ought to coalesce with one another. And thus that a traditionalist geopolitics, if there is such a thing, is, is a geopolitics where Christians come together or something like that. Rather, he wants to see unification among theocratic states and the most robustly religious and spiritual opposite secular states. And which religion is in play, it doesn't matter to him. And more, more deeply, he also wants to see unification among those states that are less individualistic, that are more collective. Um, and, and so in his mind, that, that points Russia not to the United States, not to Italy, not, not to other, other Christian nations, ostensibly, but to a theocratic state like thinks of as being a sort of ideal state. Um, and, and then in his mind to China, um, which, which he sees as embodying a sort of anti-individualism and a subordination of individual freedom to the collective. They're, they're represented by the, the strength of the Communist Party and the Chinese state. So that was not what, what Bannon was, was anticipating and you know, the conceptual frameworks were completely out of whack. And again, Doug and I'm talking about all this from, from their perspective. This, this, is, this is not to take into consideration the possibility that traditionalism, all this talk of spirituality is not just window dressing for some other, some other agenda. Uh, can, let's explore that idea because this, traditionalism even I, I would expect most people uh don't know about it and yet uh have been influenced by it or are uh fans of say trump or fans of putin whomever um what is the animating force on a popular level do you think oh i don't think that it i don't think that it has one it doesn't have any aspirations to that either um, if you went to a Trump rally and, you know, told Trump's ardent supporters that, hey, you know, a lot of what's going on right now, this is really in accordance with the teachings of Sufism. <laughs> I mean, they, they would, I don't want to, I don't want to start, you know, speaking in derogatory terms here. That I have some of those words at the tips of my tongue, but they would at least not be enthusiastic about it. Right. Right. And when 
a lot of the conversations I had with Bannon were, were they really portrayed traditionalism as being his secret motivation, right? A deeper motivation um, and not the sort of thing that needs to be talked about. And almost, it's almost as if populism, nationalism, xenophobia, let's say, racism, if we just want to go there, all those things are, are, are kind of the selling points, the public facade for this deeper, more esoteric, more confusing, um, but in his mind, more, more fundamental agenda and vision. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that when we talk about window dressing uh, for a traditionalist like Bannon or Dugan, the the essence is the philosophy and sort of like the 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 appeals to the blood are you know the window dressing yes yeah right i mean here's here's another way we we tend to always think that you know that a lot of the way that we speak a lot of the things we do in our lives are always to euphemize to beautify racism and that racism let's say is at the base of of a lot of what we do um, you know, and hence the criticisms of people who talk about, you know, moving to a nice neighborhood, you know, and things like that, but that's all co-top racism. Um, in the case of, of populism, there, there's, a, I think, a, a more revealing critique that, if not blatant racism per se, then at least nativism um, and xenophobia have been tools for free market capitalists to retain their power in government. Um, in other words, that you can't really run and win anymore uh, an election on a platform of lower lower taxes and small government. That's just not as exciting and not as, as resonant as it used to be in the, in the 80s and 90s. And so if those actors, big business, let's say, if they want to maintain their influence they have to they have to hide themselves in some other cause and populism has been the cause for them to do that so they get these populist leaders elected and then when they're in power there actually isn't that much protectionism there's not that much border border protection instead it's you know they lower taxes which is exactly what trump did of course um so in that case you would see populism as being a facade for for neoliberal if as my colleagues in the university love to say um you know for free market capitalist stuff for, but for, for Bannon, in the closer conversations with him, uh, you know, he describes the spiritual mission as, as being the deeper thing, the thing that need not be, but probably also would not benefit from being advertised uh, as, as what it is to a larger audience. And you mentioned in, like early on in the book, when you asked him, are you a traditionalist? that he's like, okay, today's off the record. Would, yes. And for that reason, he was hesitant? Yes. Yeah, because I, he knew, I mean, A, he knew what I meant by traditionalist. Yeah. Uh, he didn't mean that he plays baseball with a wooden bat as opposed to a metal bat or something like that. He knew I meant capital T traditionalism and he knows that some of, he knew right then that, you know, I probably knew about certain thinkers for whom all this talk about time cycles and hierarchy was explicitly racial, right? That a golden society, a golden era age is where you have a, a rigid caste hierarchy with Aryan men on the top, opposite 
non-Aryans. So that that was his hesitation. Um, you know, I think I think what what scared him off the bat. But as as time went on, also, uh, you know, when he eventually started to say, "Well, I'm a traditionalist in this sense. I'm a traditionalist in this sense." He also wanted to communicate to me that he, you know, he had his own take on all this stuff, and that he kind of picked and was picking and choosing from the original traditionalist teachings as he was putting together his own his own program. And one of the things, there was a, a great segment where Bannon was on Bill Maher at one point, and Bill Maher is basically uh, like saying, like, you, all you do is you take these empty vessels like Sarah Palin or Donald Trump, and you try to shove your ideas into them. And you mentioned the, the tax cuts earlier. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, is there any sense that he feels like he sort of lost control of these empty vessels or that he... Um, He's not, he, he, he didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve in the White House? Absolutely. I mean, he, he said as much to me. I don't think, he wasn't happy about the tax cuts. I, I, I kind of, I, I almost expect when you hear him talk, you would almost expect him to have been more, more aggressive in opposing, uh, opposing those tax cuts than he, than he actually was. But he, he opposed them and he, and he failed. He might've just recognized that, that he didn't have support. Um, but he also, where, where he is much more lucid in talking about the failures of Trump is when he talks about Trump's um, lack of disruption to the political status quo. You know, we think about all these, oh, Trump, you know, he destroyed all these institutions, all these, these normative behaviors in Washington that are not always guarded by law, but are guarded by practice and and, and Bannon really wanted Trump to just go to town on all of them. He never really, really did it to the extent that Bannon, Bannon hoped. So, so yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's disappointment there. On the other hand, I don't think, if I were to ask him about it today, I doubt he would say, you know, oh, all is lost. He would probably say, no, Trump was just the first, the first step. Now we've, we've opened up this new space and boy, look what's happening inside the Republican party. Um, we're in the process of transforming things. We're going to make a Trumpian party and, and the old Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney version of the party is dead forever. It's just a matter of time until we start, until um, we get someone, somebody new in there. And when we talk about his like odyssey into politics, one of he's talked about, he sort of framed it as like his origin story is the, the crash of, of 2007, 2008 and uh, the, the effect that this had on people like his father. And mm -hmm. yet he was uh, formerly an investment banker. Was he able to square that circle with you? No. Okay. I mean, I've, his, his other origin story is 9-11. Sure, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then yet another origin story has to do with Jimmy Carter. And, and his failings as a geopolitical actor. So no, I've, I've heard all of those. I mean, I don't think, I don't want us to make too much of that because most of us will come up with origin stories for ourselves and our politics that, that fray under closer inspection. Um, but no, no, that is not. Opposition to crony capitalism, big business is not a consistent feature in his, in his political career by any means, no. And when we talk about like the global reach as well uh, of this, uh, of what he's attempting, um, it, 
one of the um, states that I thought it was interesting, I, I was just in Turkey and Bannon's kind of well known in Turkey because he said something like uh, Erdogan is the most dangerous man in the world. Uh, why would he say something like that when Erdogan seems like a strong nationalist friend of Trump, et cetera? That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't know the particulars of that. Actually, I've never spoken to him about Turkey and it's, it's compelling because he's not that much of a hawk on Syria. He did not want us intervening in Syria. Does not, you know, think that Bashar al-Assad had, had to be taken out, for example. Um, and, you know, so, so, you know, here you have Alexander Dugan really wanted to reach out, out to Turkey. You think that, that Bannon might be interested in that, but he sees, he sees the, you know, a potential alliance between Turkey, Iran, China, and Russia as being really bad for the United States. Um, as as being strategically bad to see, to see such a large part of Eurasia united in one political alliance, um, but none of that—that's a strategic opposition to Turkey. None of that actually explains the sort of moral, principled opposition to Erdogan um, or Erdogan's party. So I don't I don't know those those particulars. Fair enough. And, and what about a place like Brazil? Like, why does does traditionalism or, or Bannon have an interest in Brazil? So in, in Brazil, you saw a populist leader um, very much stylizing himself in the, in the mold of Trump come to power and, um, and, and, a, and significantly for Bannon's purposes, started to push back against China. Um, its its geopolitical goal was to was to break Brazil away from from integration into the Chinese Chinese economy and Chinese trade, and to reintegrate itself into the United States um, and push toward the West. So Bannon liked that aspect of it, um, aside from the stylistics of, of of this President Bolsonaro. But things go quite a bit deeper in Brazil too. Um, you had a figure, you still have a figure influencing um, Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's popular movement, uh, who is, who has affiliations with traditionalism. Um, his name is Olavo de Carvalho, and happens to live in Virginia, not, not far from Bannon's hometown of Richmond, um, but, but has all of his political life uh, playing out in, in Brazil. Um, and so you have this, this other narrative going on there around the government. I can go into details in, in, in that story, but you not only had this opposition to, to China, but you had a deeper extra economic motivation for it among some members of the Bolsonaro team, which was that we need to be part of the West. We are culturally, religiously part of the West. Um, and we need to align with the United States and, and, and with Europe, um, not so much for political economic reasons, but because of identity-based and cultural-based reasons. And, and the fact that there is a, a you know, traditionalist ideas floating around there motivates all this. There was additionally, some members of that government also talked to Ben and this really excited him um, about the idea that, well, Brazil is kind of an outsider latecomer to modernization and to progress and to notions of progress. Um, and for that very reason, perhaps Brazil has incubated, protected some, some older elements of Western society 
um, an older Judeo-Christian essence that that can be used as you know to to Renaissance and the rest of the Judeo-Christian world. So you have, in other words, in some you have you have some pretty tangible geopolitical economic things going on, and then some some of the exact opposite, some very airy, um, esoteric uh, dreams and visions about cultural renaissance and reintegration, um, all with all a traditionalist in the mix. And I, I'm sort of going through some of the countries here, but I, I want to ask about India. It, and where Modi has like the, the BJP Hindu Nationalist Party, that seems perfectly ripe for traditionalism. No? Oh, certainly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and populism, too. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard of anyone in that in India who is actually specifically in dialogue with Bannon or Dugan about traditionalism and a traditionalist sub sub motivation to what's going on there but certainly certainly these actors are very enthusiastic about hungary and in india because of the the populism um on the surface of it and what about israel i mean is there any way that uh um bannon or or other dugan etc um like one of one of the questions going around right now is okay if you're a, a America first Trump Republican, how do you reconcile giving, you know, $30 billion in military and economic aid to Israel? Uh, is that an open question among uh, the traditionalist cohort? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in, in Brazil, that's one of the areas, one of a, a handful of areas where Olavo de Cavallo is not, is not really in in concert with the rest of traditional so in the world, um, Bannon as well. Although I don't, I don't really know in his heart of hearts what he um, really how he feels about Israel. That's that's not to just speculate about his anti-Semitism, alleged anti-Semitism, but I, that's uh, I, I don't see a really clear agenda from him. Alexander Dugan has been quite hostile to Israel, um, and. The, the critique that he offers of it is, is, will sound much more familiar and fits into some established tropes of, of, of anti-Semitism where you know, he faults the, the country from the one hand, sometimes exhibiting a sort of uh, ethno-state in the way that he might like to see it, while at the same time perpetuating um, borderlessness and in liberalism globally. Um, so, so thus that Jews have nationalism for themselves, but they want everybody else to be a disintegrated, helpless mass. I see. Uh, and again, there's, there's some pretty old roots to, to that, that particular discourse. Right. And, and um, I, I guess one of the, the questions I wanted to ask, uh, going from there is like, um, what uh, what are they like? What is the goal here? Like, I, I, maybe this is like outside of the realm of, of of what you'd feel comfortable talking about. But like psychologically, what is motivating these people? Oh, it's, it, we have to speculate, right? To say that right off the bat, because you're you're asking me to read people's minds, but I do I do have. Of course, it's something that that I that I reflect upon and I and I ask myself about. Yeah, they. On the one hand, you could say that they are simple populist right wing 
ideologues uh, for whom the typical motivations and the typical narratives about what they're doing and why don't satisfy them, right, or unsatisfactory. And, and for that reason, they're, they're searching for some other way to, to characterize what's going on, all right? Just saying, you know, they took our jobs, keep, you know, keep our, 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 our border secured. We don't want any immigrants taking our jobs anymore. That that kind of crudely materialistic way of thinking about politics and community just doesn't, doesn't mean anything to them. So they, so they want this, this supremely grand narrative. Um, it, it's, it's also aggrandizing to think that you yourself know the secrets of the cosmos and of history and the currents of time. Um, there's something flattering about that. So all, all of that could be going on. They could also be sincere in this too. They could also see, um, you know, see everything like what we were talking about before, see, populism, nationalism, right-wing politics as, as merely useful tools for, for something, for a deeper agenda. Something that speaks in favor of that interpretation is, is actually Bannon's history. Um, you talked about the fact that his, you know, he's supposedly this anti-capitalist uh, crusader who has worked for Goldman Sachs and we don't see consistency in that aspect of his biography we do see more consistency in his interest in alternative spirituality and in, in semi-reactionary um, religious trends. That is more consistent. It predates his participation in Republican party politics. It predates his interest in media. It predates his, his time in the military, everything. That has been more consistent. Um, so perhaps that speaks to, to some sincerity in all of this. When you mentioned the fact that these people don't want to uh, justify their like prior beliefs with something as crassly materialistic as like they took our jobs or, or what have you, um, it is there's a great quote from like an Orwell review of Mein Kampf where he talks about, uh, uh, you know, like socialists and, and capitalists basically said, like, I'm, I'm promising you a good time. And Hitler came and said, I'm promising you like struggle, danger and death. And people just leapt at his feet. Is there an element of that going on, you think? I would have to hear more. That's, that's a compelling reference you just make there. We haven't talked that much about the connotations of the time cycle in traditionalism. But the fact that, you know, it goes from gold to silver to bronze to dark and then the belief is, is that there's a cataclysmic event, destruction, fire, that that will reset you and carry you from an age of depravity and darkness into one of glory. Um, and thus that that sets, sets us up, um, sets the participant, the believer up to celebrate struggle, conflict, destruction, death, and all of those things. <sighs> and it's... I'm thinking, thinking aloud here, Duncan, it, that part of traditionalism is one that resonates a bit more and is perhaps a bit better suited to public presentation than others. Mm. Um, the tear it all down narrative. Yes. Yeah. Um, Trump the destroyer that, you know, Bannon was kind of careful and he, he waxed, he went in between a couple 
a couple times saying, well, Trump, no, he's a, Trump is a disruptor. And then other times he'd say destroyer and as if disruptor was the euphemism and destroyer is what he really believed, but he didn't want to say it in public. I think a lot of people loved the idea of Trump as destroyer. People who hate the direction of, of social change, who hate the government, the federal state, that's a familiar discourse in the United States and who love the idea of a battering ram. Um, you know, take no thought for the morrow. Uh, no, no plans for really what will come in its place or what will replace the, the destroyed um, structure. But, but surely, the, surely the plan for, for disruption was exciting. So yeah, there could be something to that. Uh, we're almost at an hour here. So I, I want to just, I, I have two more questions. Uh, the, when you talk about like the destruction, that phase, uh, do, do these people give much thought to climate change? I haven't heard anyone talk about it. Okay. No. I mean, I mean the, in Brazil, a lot of them are more explicit in saying they think it's complete nonsense. Um, and they see it as a sort of sign of the times, a sign of our depravity that in their mind, scientists are, spreading lies you know scientists should be learning and teaching the truth about the natural world but instead they're spreading lies and, and global warming is one of those lies that's something that you heard from Alavo and, and some of his acolytes in brazil because hmm. you'd think that would slot right in there you know uh -huh. <laughs> an age of destruction yeah it's you know it's interesting i've had a conversation with with steve's brother um about this who you know, who more or less accepts the, some of the basics of, of climate change, even though I think he's, he's critical of some, uh, he, I can't remember the remark. I shouldn't, I shouldn't try and quote him right now. Um, yeah, but you think that that would play into a narrative of, of conflict, that we're living in an age of, of destruction and, and, you know, of cosmic forces beyond the, the ebb and flow of, of daily politics, but cosmic forces that, that mean to destroy the world that we're living in right now. Uh, yeah, but you know, the chips fall as they do. And, and that, that narrative is, is really possessed, I think by not just the left, but also people who want to see uh, sort of a global actors working together in a multilateral sense, in a, in a globalistic border breaking sense to address the problem. And that's, that's never gonna fly. That makes sense. And the, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, where is this going? Do you, do you, I mean, it's, we can't predict the future, but do you see this, uh, this traditionalism as having sort of the wave crested or, or is it gathering energy? Here's what would speak for the wave having crested. The fact that virtually all of the individuals who work with this, you know, if we're talking about Dugan, the Brazilian guy, Olavo, Bannon, the figures in Europe I mentioned very briefly, Olavo's acolytes in Brazil, it, it has been professionally, formally, officially, just complete nightmare for them, right? Yeah. They can't hold down a job. They lose their positions all the time. They're in all sorts of legal trouble. They have money trouble all the time. So um, that might relate to, in some way, their traditionalism and the fact that they are so idealistic that they will not subordinate themselves to practicality. Um, and thus, that's going to make them, in some sense, um, ineffective professionals. Um, so that could be that could be the case. But if if we 
don't think about this in terms of the people. You don't think about this as a story about Bannon and Dugan and Alava, but instead do what so many of my colleagues don't want to do and treat ideas like real things. And we think about traditionalism's trajectory. Um, there, I, there I hesitate a little bit to think that this is all over and that this was just a parenthetical historical moment that lasted a handful of years. Because we see some ideas that were the possession of the least enfranchised members of society um, for, gener for uh, generations, it has to be said, for decades, um, you know, throughout the 20, 20th century. And then all of a sudden, almost at the same moment, at a time of political upheaval, suddenly figures who were interested in these ideas and associated and identified with them found themselves in positions of power. Could that broader story, could that uh, whatever social forces were there that made these ideas appealing to, um, to these people, could those forces stay there? I think so. And in that case, we're talking about full throttle, full-throated rejection of liberal democracy, rejection of modernistic values, basic elemental modernistic values like progress, like equality. Um, are we at a stage of of dissatisfaction with those ideas that that even the most far-fetched alternatives um, will will start to appeal? I think the answer could be yes. Um, so that speaks in favor of it. But I don't. As to where it all goes, I don't know. Uh, Benjamin, thank you for your time. Where where can people get your book? Anywhere books are sold, I assume. Any place books are sold. And you have a website that people can go to. Yes, uh, just my name, BenjaminTitlebaum.com. Alrighty. Uh, great. I, I really enjoyed this and uh, have a great rest of your day. A pleasure chatting with pleasure, pleasure chatting with you, Duncan. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Benjamin Teitelbaum and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.